I'm not going to say anything about who you look like. Okay, well. (laughs) I was almost going to ask him if I should put the glasses on just to see if you can tell the difference between us. So that's been a running joke all weekend, the way we look alike. Uh, And so I was coming in this morning, and this gentleman sees me, and he goes, wow, you sure look a lot like Pastor Dan. And I go, okay, you're in on this joke. And he goes, what joke? And then a second person came up to me and said, I look like Dan. And I didn't even ask that person if they were in on the joke. And so, well, it's really been our blessing. Thank you, Pastor Dan, for the great privilege of preaching behind this pulpit and having my family here. It really has been tremendous for us. I don't take this lightly or for granted. Uh, thank the other elders as well for having my wife and I here. It's been a wonderful trip for us. We try to get away together, just the two of us, once or twice per year. And so this has been a very special time. I do have some books still available in the foyer, and I just want to let you know, don't ever write books to make money, okay? (laughs) And so because that's not the purpose behind it, if money's tight or anything, then it would be a blessing to me just for you to come and and take any. I'd only ask that you you would read them or if you give them as gifts that they're given to people who would end up reading them. I'd be glad not to take all these books back to Washington. I'm thankful to see so many young people in the service. I was thinking about many of you while I was preparing this sermon. And I have to say, that was a much kinder introduction than I was expecting, the way we've been bantering back and forth all weekend. I was anticipating a little harassment. Normally, it takes a few months to build up the sort of intimacy where you can really be making fun of each other. Dan and I jumped to that at the beginning. (laughs) So (laughs) I was waiting for something. All right, well, why don't you open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. The title of this message is Avoid Covetousness and Be Content with What You Have. It's wonderful to see the young people here. It's wonderful to listen to all of you singing when I was toward the front. It's great to be in a church that has people singing like this. While you turn to Ephesians 4, I want to ask you a question. Why do we fail so frequently when it comes to repentance? Why do we fail so frequently when it comes to repentance? Well, I'm glad you asked that. It's because we think almost exclusively in terms of stopping without also thinking of starting. And this brings us to lesson one. Hopefully you have a handout on here. So repentance involves starting, stopping and starting. Stopping and starting. You also notice there are some discussion questions here. I think it's really important, if you know this, if you were at the conference the last couple days, for families to gather around God's word throughout the week And that responsibility largely rests on the Father's shoulders. And so I do hope that these discussion questions might be a benefit to you if you gather around God's Word to talk about the sermon. You can look at that later. There's just three days there, so perhaps choose three days of the week that you can come together and go through those questions as a family. Now, John the Baptist, was John the Baptist performing Christian baptisms as we know them? No, because Christ hadn't died, been buried, and resurrected yet, which is what Christian baptisms symbolize when we're lowered under the water and then brought back up. So what was John performing? A baptism of, he was performing a baptism of repentance. He was the forerunner preparing the way for people to receive the Messiah, and he knew that the only way that they would want to have a Savior was if they recognized their sinfulness and need to be saved. So he said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And that sounds odd especially if you think of repentance only in terms of stopping because he's talking about also starting or producing. He says, bear fruits, begin something. It's important to notice because if we only think of stopping, we're going to fail to repent. 
In Scripture, this is known as putting off and putting on. So when you stop something, you must also start something else, or there must be some fruit that accompanies the repentance. And two of the clearest passages discussing this are Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. We'll just look at a few verses in Ephesians 4. Look in verse 25 with me. Therefore, having put away falsehood. So that's what you're going to stop, or that's what you're going to put off. And then this is what you start. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So if you struggle with lying, it's not enough to simply stop lying. You're also going to need to make a conscious effort to tell the truth. That probably means being very accurate in your speech, concentrating on what you're saying, ensuring what you're saying is true. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. So this is what you're going to stop, and then this is what you're going to start. But rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the thief is going to put off theft, and then he's going to put on laboring. And I want to spend one more moment on this example because it relates so closely to covetousness and contentment. Really, this can be a paradigm shift for many people who've spent their Christian lives thinking of repentance only in terms of stopping. And that's why they fail. If you think of that parable of the, of the house where the unclean spirit goes out, but the house remains what? Empty. And then the man ends up in a worse condition later. And so when you repent or you put off, there's a void that's created. There's a vacuum that must be filled with something. And if you don't fill it with fruit or you don't fill it with something good, then what's going to happen? That sense, so you stopped going to the bars, but where did you start going? You stopped talking that way to your children that you're convicted about, but what did you start saying to them? Here it says, rather let him labor. Now, why do most people labor, myself included? We labor to have more for ourselves. In other words, we labor not so that we would have something to share with anyone in need, as this verse says, but that so we would have more for ourselves. In our consumer-driven society, we tend to labor according to our need, or don't tend to labor according to our need, we tend to labor according to our greed. We're constantly seeking to raise our standard of living. But if we want to practice victory over covetousness, we're going to need to raise our capacity to give, raise our ability to have something to share with anyone in need. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's what you're going to repent of or stop. That's what you're going to put off. And then here's the fruit that's going to be replaced or what you're going to put on, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So you don't just stop saying the unwholesome things. You're going to consciously speak words of edification and encouragement. If you're a parent, have you ever had one of your children say something cruel to another child? No? Well, that's shocking. <laughs> I need to spend some time in your homes. So learn from you. Well, in our home, sometimes our kids say cruel things to each other, and we've noticed that very frequently we tell them to stop what they're saying but we don't tell them what to put on or tell them the kind thing that they could say instead. And without something to fill that void, they fall back into saying those cruel things to each other. Tying it all together, verse 31, put off all this, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, put away from you with all malice, and then put on, verse 32, being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So essentially, if someone has genuinely repented of the sins in verse 31, you're going to start seeing the fruit or evidence of that being produced in verse 32. And you probably notice the verses are presented in opposing pairs because perhaps even while we're talking about this, there's a sin that you struggle with and you're kind of hoping you'd see it in this list, right? 
because you want to know, if I stop this, what am I going to put on? Well, it doesn't have to list every sin. It gives us the recipe that tells us we're going to put on the opposite. So you need to think in terms of, if I stop this, what is the opposite? That's what I'm going to need to start instead. So if we want victory over covetousness, it is not enough to simply pray, Lord, help me stop this. In fact, just don't, don't pray this anymore, or at least don't stop at this part of the prayer. Don't say, Lord, help me stop this. Say, Lord, help me stop this and also help me start this. Help, give me the grace to have victory over this sin, but also the grace to produce the fruit that's necessary for this victory. And this brings us to lesson two. Put off covetousness and put on contentment. Put off covetousness and put on contentment. So if you covet, which we all do to some extent, then what you're going to put on is, coven is contentment. As you can probably imagine, there is a close relationship between covetousness and contentment. We covet because we're discontent. We covet because we're discontent with what we have. We think that we will be happy or we will be content if we get whatever it is we're coveting. And that's how covetousness destroys or is the enemy of contentment. Covetousness and contentment are mutually exclusive because if we're coveting, we're discontent. If we're content, we're not coveting. Covetousness makes us slaves. We want something so bad, we're chained up, we lack freedom. We feel as though we will not be satisfied or have enjoyment until we obtain this thing. The only way to be freed is to repent or put off covetousness and put on contentment. And that's why contentment truly is the path to freedom, to have those chains released. John White said, freedom is an inner contentment with what you have. It means to covet only heavenly treasure. Now, I'm going to share some statistics with you. We live in the richest nation in the world. We have more than everyone else combined, but really how much richer are we in the United States? Disposable income is the amount of money that households have for spending and saving after income taxes have been accounted for. So just listen to the disposable income of some other countries. Russia's disposable income is less than $17,000. France's disposable income is $60,000. The United Kingdom's disposable income is $83,000. We're getting higher here. China, Canada's disposable income is $86,000. The nation in second place, Canada's third, and second place is Switzerland with a disposable income of $128,000. And then in first place, the United States with a disposable income of $176,000, which is 40% more than the nation in second place. Seven and a half billion people in the world. Listen to this. China is the world's most populous nation with 1.4 billion people, or almost 20% of the world's population. It has 10.5% of the nation's wealth. The U.S. has 327 million people, or a little more than 4% of the world's population. A little more than 4% of the world's population lives in the United States, but we have almost 42% of the world's wealth. Just let that think, sink in for a moment. 4% of the population of this world lives in the United States, and we're approaching having half of the world's wealth in this country. 
in the U.S., the poverty threshold for a family of five is $30,500. So in other words, if a family of five makes less than $30,500 per year, they're considered living in poverty. The average global income for a family of five is about $10,500, which means that people in poverty in our nation, people in poverty in our nation are still making three times more than the average income in the rest of the world. In other words, even our poor people are still typically three times wealthier than the average person in the rest of the world. Now, maybe you're saying, well, things are more expensive for us in the United States. That's true, but even after adjusting for cost of living differences, a typical American still earns an income that is 10 times higher than the average person in the rest of the world. Last statistic. In the U.S., an annual income of $32,400 doesn't seem high, but it's a salary that puts us among the top 1% of earners in the world. Now, does anyone remember back in 2011 the Occupy Wall Street movement and the 1%? Okay. It took place with many people protesting income distribution, and their slogan was, we are the 99%. <laughs> It referred to the concentration of wealth among the top 1% compared to the other 99% of the population, which these people were claiming to be part of. The irony is, if any of those people made more than $32,400, which I suspect they did, then they were not in the 99%. They were in the 1%. Because the U, at least compared to the rest of the world, is my point. Because the U.S. is so rich, I was building up to make this point. You would expect what regarding the people in our country because of our wealth? That we would be the happiest or perhaps generous? That would definitely be an extension of this sermon to talk about generosity and giving and something that hopefully would be convicting us while considering how wealthy we are. But we should be the happiest. We should be the most content. You think that right now I would be standing in the easiest place, not just in the whole world, but in all of human history, to preach a sermon about contentment because I am in the U.S. But this is far from the case, and it brings us to lesson three. Contentment can't be found from wealth. Contentment cannot be found from wealth. I spent hours looking at 20 or more articles about depression and suicide, I pulled out some of the most st uh, staggering statistics for you. And by the way, when I quote secular studies, it's not that we need them to inform the Bible or to legitimize the Bible. My point in sharing secular studies is that even the world recognizes what the Bible teaches. It's interesting when the world will commit millions of dollars to discovering something that the Bible's been teaching for thousands of years, right? Okay, there was a study published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, and the other thing is you can't go to God's Word to get statistics on suicide and depression or wealth. So sometimes you can look at these things secularly to support what God's Word teaches. And a study in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology concluded that since the late 2000s, the mental health of teens and young adults has declined dramatically. Between 2009 and 2017, rates of depression, attempted suicides, and serious psychological distress 
among kids up to young ages, 12 to 21, has increased by 51%. From 2009 to 2017, an increase of over 50% in attempted suicides and in depression and serious psychological issues. More than one in eight Americans ages 12 to 25 claim they've experienced a major episode of depression. The CDC reports that between 2007 and 2016, rates of suicide jumped 56%. And then get this, suicide is now the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 34. So we are rich and miserable. We are rich and depressed and discontent. Our wealth and possessions are not helping us. So you might wonder two things. Why such a dramatic increase in the last decade? And second, why such a dramatic increase among young people? Any guesses? Let me ask you again. Why such a dramatic increase in the last decade, and why such a dramatic increase among young people? Social media. Now, I'll be the first to say I see social media amorally. We have social media accounts. You can look us up or find us and, and see that we have, have them, and so this is not necessarily a condemnation of social media, but it, it is important for us to understand the potential effects or ways that it can hurt us negatively or be used immorally. Social media can dramatically increase depression and loneliness. Or another way to say it is social media can dramatically increase covetousness and dramatically decrease or destroy even contentment. Jean Twenge, a professor of psychology at San Diego State University, she's the author of a book called iGen, a book about how technology affects the lives of young people. She wrote, there was one change that impacted the lives of young people more than older people, and that was the growth of smartphones and digital media, like social media, texting, and gaming. While older adults also use these technologies, their adoption among younger people was faster and more complete, and the impact on their social lives was much stronger. She explains that the way young people communicate and spend their leisure time has, and I quote, fundamentally changed. Young people spend less time with their friends in person and less time sleeping and more time on digital media. A study that examined the association between screen time and depression among U.S. adults read, activities that benefit mental health, including sleep and face-to-face -face interaction with friends and family, have declined as American youths have deepened their engagement with digital media. A substantial amount of research has found associations between heavy technology use and poor mental health outcomes among adolescents and young adults. Let me just read that one more time. They have found substantial research substantiating that between heavy technology use and poor mental health, health outcomes among adolescents and young adults. Another article in the Child Mind Institute, it was titled, Does Social Media Cause Depression? Part of it says, evidence is mounting that there's a link between social media and depression. In several studies, teenage and young adult users who spend the most time on Instagram, Facebook, and other platforms were shown to have a substantially higher rate of depression, up 66% 
more than those who spent less. And so I don't want to pry too much in your homes, but one thing I would say to you parents is ensure that your children are interacting with others. Ensure that they're having face-to-face conversations. Ensure they're leaving your home. Ensure that they're getting out and spending time with people. I've sat in rooms, and I've watched young people ask each other questions in texts. And I'm like, he's sitting right there. Just ask him the question. You didn't need to take out your phone to talk to him. (laughs) Have a conversation. You can still do that. You remember how to talk, right? You remember the words come out like this, and they listen. You go back and forth. Lisa Demore is a clinical psychologist who specializes in treating adolescents and young adults. She attributed the increased rates of depression to being socially isolated, not getting enough sleep, often because social media is interfering with sleep. And listen to this, stress from the world's problems. Let me read this one more time. This woman who specializes in treating adolescents and young adults, she attributed the increased rates of depression to stress from the world's problems. Well, why would that be? There's a duality associated with the way that social media connects us. It's good in that it connects us to more people, so we're more aware of their problems. We can pray for them. We can, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many times have you seen some need on social media or Facebook and it's allowed you to give some, some families going through a young father with cancer or some family who's lost a child or these medical bills are piling up and someone shares the need and shares about the family and then you're able to give financially. That's a wonderful thing. Or pray for them. Tell them you're praying. Share the struggle. Bear each other's burdens, as Galatians 6.2 says. So there's a good in that it connects us to more people so we're aware of more problems but it's bad in that it connects us to more people and we're aware of more problems. It weighs on us. So suddenly, you don't know one person with cancer. You know 20 people with cancer. You don't know one person who lost his job or is having financial issues. You know 20 people who lost their jobs and are having financial issues. You don't know about one person who got in an accident. You know about 20 people who got in an accident. You can even see pictures of it. You don't know one person who died. You know 20 people who died. Suddenly it seems like lots of people are getting sick. Lots of people are losing their jobs. Lots of people are losing loved ones. We have the struggles and suffering of so many people weighing on us. And I'm not convinced that it was God's plan for us to be familiar with the grief and suffering of that many people. We're not God. We don't have infinite capacities like he does. Even Jesus himself, when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and came from heaven to earth, how many close relationships did he have? Even when God became a man, he only had 12 close relationships. And among those 12, he had three that he was closer with. But God in the flesh wasn't that intimately close with everyone. We can't know everyone that well and bear all of their burdens and griefs without it crushing us. Another way that social media negatively affects all of us, Oren Myron, a research associate in biomedical informatics, whatever that is, at Harvard Medical School wrote that social media may be contributing to rising suicide rates, particularly particularly for young people, because it leads to fewer meaningful in-person interactions which can protect against mental health issues and suicidal behavior. And then listen to this. 
and encourage unhealthy comparison with others. So I've already, we've already talked about a few of these things, and you heard that again, you're like, well, you're telling us that for the third time. But now you're hearing that one of the problems is it encourages unhealthy comparison with others. Can you imagine the problems com from comparing our lives with others on social media? How does everyone want their life to look on social media? Let's be honest, come on now. Good. You take the photo a second time, or third or fourth when it doesn't look good, don't you? When you're not smiling well enough. You're, you're arguing with your kids to get them to look like sane individuals for the family photo, right? <laughs> In fact, if people could see behind the scenes of this family photo, they would have probably seen a lot of bickering and arguing. But when the camera comes out, the whole family looks good. And then everyone sees that on social media, and what do they say? That is a perfect family. Why isn't my family like that? Why can't my kids all get along as well as those kids are getting along, at least in that picture? Everyone's life looks great. Everyone's kids and family look perfect. Who takes pictures of their broken down, inexpensive stuff? Everyone's life looks fancy and extravagant and wonderful. They're going on expensive trips. They're getting new stuff. And then suddenly our stuff doesn't look so good. We used to be content with our house, our car, our job, our spouse, our friends, you name it. But then we see our neighbor or friend on Facebook who has a better house, better car, better job, better spouse, better children, and suddenly ours don't look as good. We're filled with covetousness. Our contentment is gone. If it's not the people, and there's something a few years ago, you remember when George Floyd was murdered? They, I couldn't keep watching the video. I was watching him calling out for his mother, and I had to turn it off. It was too much. Are we really supposed to be able to see people expiring like that? Because one thing when you see it in a movie when you know it's fictionalized, but then you go to social media, you're watching the Twin Towers, I remember that, 20 years ago, crashing down where I was and just thinking about the incredible grief. Do you know who would have seen that even just centuries ago? Only the people there, an incredibly tiny percent of the population. Who sees that now? Everyone. Over and over. If you turned on a television anywhere on September 11th, you were going to watch those towers collapse over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and it can't help but weigh on you. You cannot help but be filled with anxiety from seeing these things. And with social media, it's everywhere. What's, what's the saying in the news? If it bleeds, it leads. If it's not the people around us, it's the advertisements around us. The television, the radio, the billboards when we're driving down the road, ads that fill our screen whenever we're on the internet, the flyers in our mailboxes surrounded by ads. All the way the algorithms work. You know how it is. You go, you search one thing on the internet, and then the next thing you know, you're on Facebook, and you see tons of ads for that, right? I was a business major in college. I took marketing, and marketing 101 is make people discontent. 
Marketing is all about making people discontent. Convince them that they are miserable until they get what you're offering. That's how you sell. That's what good salesmen do. And when you buy what I'm offering, then you can finally be happy. But until then, continue in your sad little life. We live in a culture that is incredibly effective at tempting us to covet. We're constantly hungry for more and better and new and improved and shinier. And all of that creates discontentment. And so the question is, with so many things tempting us to covet, how can we be content? How can we effectively put off covetousness and put on contentment? And this brings us to lesson four. Contentment comes from God. Contentment comes from God. Contentment is a spiritual issue. That's probably one of the most important things I can tell you this morning. If you just give me your attention, contentment is a spiritual issue. Contentment can never be satisfied physically. It can never be satisfied from anything in this world. Contentment can never be found from anything this world offers. There is an entire book of the Bible committed to making this point that there is nothing this world can offer you that would allow continued contentment. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. People find it to be one of the most depressing books in the Bible, but the main point of it is this. There was a man, Solomon, who was able to experience excesses that most of us could never even imagine. So here's the thing. If I, told, I can stand here, for example. I had a lesson about wealth not making us happy. And if you're honest, when I say, hey, wealth doesn't make us happy, wealth doesn't make us content, this is what you do, and it doesn't bother me at all. You say, well, you've got nine kids and you're a pastor. You don't know whether wealth makes us happy because you're not wealthy. That's fine. I'll take that. <laughs> so this is what God does for you. He takes a man and gives him so much wealth that what becomes worthless in his kingdom? Silver. So here's what you can't say with Solomon. You can say with me, well, if you had a little more, then maybe you'd be content, Scott. With Solomon, you can't say, well, if he had a little more, then he'd be content. He had excesses that we can only dream of. What about relationships? How many people have looked for the contentment that comes from relationships with people. So what does Solomon end up having? 700 wives, 300 concubines. You can't even wrap your mind around it. Still not content. Parties day and night. The number of animals, hundreds of them, slaughtered every day just to feed all of the entertainers and keep the party going. All power, fame, that we can't imagine the entire known world bringing him gifts, seeking audiences with him. How many people have sought contentment from power, from fame? And Solomon just looks at his life and he says, I, it's vanity. It's vanity. I am miserable. I cannot find contentment. I can't find joy. I can't find satisfaction anywhere. Why is that? Because he's looking for it from the world. His life was a life lived apart from God. And if you want to find contentment or live apart from the Lord, you get to live in Ecclesiastes. You get to be like Solomon. You must find your contentment from the spiritual, from the Lord. Twice, listen to this. Paul said, covetousness is idolatry. Colossians 3.5, covetousness, which is idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, 5, everyone who is covetous, that is an idolater. Now, if covetousness is idolatry, do you know what that means? If covetousness is idolatry, the first and tenth commandments are the same. Does that make sense? 
The first commandment forbids idolatry. The tenth commandment forbids covetousness, which is idolatry. And why would this be? Because covetousness is a heart that is divided between two gods. The true God, the Lord of our lives, and whatever it is that we are coveting. And so Paul calls it idolatry because we desire something more than we desire God. We desire something so much we lose our contentment in God. And this is why contentment is a spiritual issue. If you want to put on contentment, you must be putting it on spiritually. It cannot be found from anything physical. Listen to this quote that captures the situation. Jeremiah Burroughs said, My brethren, the reason you are not content with the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. And he could definitely say that to us in the United States. But it's because they are not fitting to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. Many think that when they are troubled and do not have contentment, it is because they have but only a little of the world, and if they only had a little more, they would be content. This is just as if a man were hungry, and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should open his mouth to consume the wind, and then should think that the reason he's not satisfied is because he has not consumed enough of the wind. No, the reason you're not content is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. And you have a craving stomach. We all do. The Lord created us that way. And you're not going to have that stomach satisfied from anything that you're going to find in this earthly world. It's all vanity. His point is because contentment's a spiritual issue. Trying to find contentment through the physical is trying to satisfy your appetite by eating wind. If we want to be content, we must approach it spiritually. When we pursue contentment through the physical, we're trying to fill a need in our lives, a need to be somebody. Because when we have this, then we will feel good about ourselves. When we're finally, and then fill in the blank, a need to feel cared for. Because when we have this, it'll give us the security that we crave, a need to have some excitement in our lives. How many people think, well, the next party is going to do it. I joined this fraternity in college. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And I remember this one time I was standing at this party and I was looking around. And I don't know if I already shared this with my wife. But there's all my fraternity brothers and everyone's partying and looks like they're having this great time. And it occurred to me, I wonder if they're baking. Because this isn't that enjoyable. And how many times have we done this this year? And how many more are we going to have and it's getting repetitive, and I wonder if everyone's just kind of like pretending it's a lot of fun when really it's not. People looking for the excitement from parties, relationships, and when we get that, it'll give us the newness that we desire. We covet these things, money, power, position, possessions, and it's a deception. It's a lie. They're not going to satisfy us. And that's why people in the United States, the wealthiest nation in the world, struggle with so much depression and discontentment. So let me say it like this. Contentment cannot be obtained by trying hard enough. You are never going to be able to put forth enough human effort to become content. You will never be able to obtain enough wealth or possessions. Now, it doesn't mean that possessions don't provide some degree of temporary contentment. They do, but it doesn't last. In fact, once that contentment doesn't last, all it's done is it has increased your appetite for more. 
Lasting contentment only comes from the Lord, only found in a relationship with him because he created us, he loved us, he satisfies us, he knows what's best for us. So what is the ultimate cause of discontentment? It is not something in the horizontal. It is something in the vertical. It is a failure to pursue the Lord as the true source of joy and meaning in life. Whenever we are discontent, it is because there's a failure to pursue Christ as the true source of joy and meaning in life. Sometimes we talk about the most distinguishing traits of godly people. If you think of the godliest people you know, how would you describe them? Maybe you say they're humble. You say they're servants. You say they're prayerful. You say they're joyful. And those are wonderful qualities. I would add contentment to the list. Contentment is one of the most distinguishing traits of godly people because it is evidence of a heart that is rooted and rested in Christ versus something else. Have you ever seen people going through something incredibly difficult, yet able to be content? That is supernatural. That is something that came from the Lord. William Hendrickson said, the truly godly person is not interested in becoming rich. He possesses inner resources which furnish riches far beyond, beyond that which earth could offer. Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 3.5, two books to the left. I'll show you some verses supporting all this. 2 Corinthians 3.5. See how I'm doing on time here. My flight leaves at 5 or 6, so I've got about three hours left to preach. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 3.5. Paul says, not that we're sufficient, or your Bibles might say content. Those are used synonymously. I'll just say not that we're sufficient or content in ourselves. In other words, we can't. He's saying we can't be sufficient or content on our own to claim anything is from us, but our sufficiency or our contentment is from God. Sufficiency or contentment comes from God. Thank you for the answer up front there, young man. Turn to, turn to the right to 2 Corinthians 9 8. 2 Corinthians 9 8. And I'll tell you, young people who are listening, you give me your attention, young people. If you learn this lesson while you're young, I cannot tell you the problems you're going to be spared from. If there's anyone in this room who should be listening, it is the young people here. You should look at your parents and you should thank them for bringing you to service because of the blessing it is to be raised in a Christian home. And I'm convinced there are many young people who take for granted how fortunate you are to be here listening to God's word. I don't mean to be here listening to me. That's insignificant. But if you are a young person, in any opportunity I have, I want to stress this to teenagers especially, you have no idea the grace of God that has allowed you to be in a Bible-teaching church and being raised by Christian parents. This puts you in such a small minority. The grace of God has been poured out on your life in such an incredible way. Never take that for granted. Thank your parents for being godly people who bring you to church. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency... Now, there's a footnote probably in your Bibles that say all sufficiency means all contentment. So God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all contentment in all things, you may abound in every good work. So content 
and sufficient are synonymous, and it comes from the Lord. The Greek word for all sufficiency, which is translated content, in 1 Timothy 6.6, godliness with contentment is great gain. I've learned in whatever situation, Philippians 4.11, I am to be content. That's the same word. It means self-sufficient, a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. In other words, you have everything you need because you have the Lord. If you have the Lord, you don't need anything else. Have you ever looked at someone, and, and don't ever do this, you, you look at someone and they're going through something difficult and you think, I, you know, I don't know if I could do that. I couldn't do that. You probably couldn't right now because God hasn't given you the grace to go through that. But if that person's in Christ, God gives that person the grace. But if you're not going through the same trial as that person, you cannot expect God to be giving you the same grace that he's giving that person. But if you went through the same thing as that person, you would be given the grace to be content in that situation like they seem to be. Regarding the sufficiency or contentment that God can give us, look at the universals or the alls in this verse. It's truly staggering. God is able to make all grace abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, so we can abound in every or all good works. Our resources are limited. We have limited time. We have limited money, limited energy. What does God have? Infinite, infinite grace. He can dispense it lavishly. He doesn't have to hold it back. To put it simply, he has the grace for even the most discontent person to be content and sufficient. So here is a hard truth. When you are not content, it is not the Lord's fault. It is your fault. God has not run out of grace it's that you have looked for contentment outside of Christ. I'll show you one more verse. Turn to Hebrews 13, 5. Hebrews, James, Peter. This might be the most important verse on this subject. This sermon is largely birthed just from this verse. Hebrews 13, 5. I think it's the last place we turn. Hebrews 13, 5, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money, or some translations say covetousness. So Hebrews 35, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And now we're tying this back to the beginning of the sermon. Did you see what the author of Hebrews did right here? He said, put off covetousness, be content with what you have. Put on contentment. Keep your life free from money or covetousness. Put off co covetousness and be content with what you have. Put on contentment. Now, how would we expect God to say that we can do this? How would we expect God to say that we can be content? Despise money. Never crave anything. Hate the pleasures of the world. No. Look how he says to be content in the rest of verse 5. Be content with what you have for or because... He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just as we sang in that third song. So the contentment is found from recognizing that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. You have this promise, this incredible promise. It is threaded throughout the Old Testament. God told Jacob when he had the dream of the angels ascending and descending on the ladder 
Genesis 28:15. Jacob, behold, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you. God makes this promise to Joshua. Deuteronomy 31, 6. It's the Lord your God. He goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1, 5. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. David makes the promise to Solomon when he becomes king. 1 Chronicles 28, 20. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then we see the same promise in the New Testament. To the disciples, before he left them, Jesus, Jesus said, Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The Lord promises Paul in this vision, Acts 18, 10, I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. At this moment, the band can come, come up as we come to the, close to the end of our sermon here. This promise, it is one of the most forceful promises in all of Scripture because it contains two double negatives. He says, neither will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God is trying to make overwhelmingly clear that he will always be with you, and because of that, you can be content in any situation or circumstance you experience. It's as though God is saying this to you, I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you. And that reality should allow us to be content. No amount of money, possessions can ever replace this beautiful truth that Christ will always be with us. But here's an important point. This is not about knowing. This is about believing. It's not about having the... And what I mean by that, because you say, well, isn't it important to know this? I mean, it's not about the head knowledge. It's about the heart knowledge. It's not about me saying this and you knowing it. It's about me saying this and you believing it. This is about truly believing the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. And when we embrace this promise, it becomes the most important things in our life, allowing us to be content in any circumstance. I'll close with this quote from Steve Swartz. He said, the best time to look for blessings is when you feel like your life is devoid of them. The enjoyment of God's pleasures is the outworking of genuine trust in him. This demonstrates authentic contentment. It is the Lord's quiet, comforting way of informing you that he remains right here with you. He sits with you through the countless silent blessings he gives every single day. Father, we thank you for the contentment that is found in Christ. I hope we're all convinced that any contentment found in the world is fleeting, passing, temporary, leaves us discontent in the future, and generally even more covetous as we look for more. And so I pray, Lord, we'd find our contentment in Christ and in this great promise that you never leave us or forsake us. If there's any here who are not in Christ, then they cannot find that covenant. We pray today they cannot find that contentment. We pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that you would open their hearts to the Gospels, that you would grant them faith in Christ, and that they could begin lives of contentment in relationship with you. We thank you so much for your son, what he's done for us, and the gospel's work in our lives in drawing us to him and conforming us into his image. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen, amen.